0: Welcome back to another episode of Food Conversation. I'm super excited to have Dr. Ardevan Zadarad with me today. He's currently an assistant professor of the Faculty of Education at Wilfrid Laurier University and an instructor in the Masters of Teaching and Bachelor of Education program at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education, which is at the University of Toronto. Uh, He completed his PhD from the Department of Curriculum and Teaching and Learning at the University of Toronto. And his research interests include equity, diversity, and inclusion, particularly standardized testing, systems of accountability, community engagement, anti-oppressive practices, critical pedagogy, social justice, resistance, subversion, and decolonization. Artie, can I call you Artie this morning?
1: Yes. Yes, of course. Many people call me that. Thanks for having me.
0: (laughs) Hey, how are you doing? And uh, I'm assuming, are you in Toronto right now or are you uh, somewhere else?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm in Toronto right now. You know, I commute when I go to teach at Larry, Wilfred Laurier, but uh, home is Toronto.
0: Your home is Toronto. And so how has it been for the past few days? I, I, You know, there's several things that are going on, as you know, in the province of Ontario. Notwithstanding, for example, what took place with the Ontario government yeah. and, and the negotiations with uh, QP in terms of their essential work in the schools and the lack of pay equity that they have received or not received over the last 10 years. And I was just wondering how that's been in Toronto as as the epicenter of some of the protests in terms of what's taking place. How's that been? Have you been out there uh, with colleagues or, or following that?
1: Um, yeah, I haven't gone down to Queen's Park personally, but of course, uh, trying to do advocacy awareness through the conversation with people in community, through social media platforms, and really um, at the front lines in terms of uh, colleagues who I know who are still working within the school system. So um, I think it's really has been a great uh, show of solidarity, uh, both from the labor movement, including others who are not in the labor movement, students, parents, really seeing how, you know, the QP uh, union has been treated. Um, you know, they've been under numerous freezes over the years when it, when you talk about you know a livable wage, uh, particularly um, given the inflation in the last couple of years. It was really great to see them really take a stance against being legislated back to work and kind of having things imposed on them. And I think it shows the importance of you know requiring dialogue and negotiation and having different perspectives heard and not just trying to overpower someone through legislation Um, so you know it's too early to judge but i think it was a great small win to celebrate um, having the bill rescinded um, i mean happening very soon and now we have to see how those negotiations go because you know there was an opportunity to renegotiate but that was kind of denied and if things don't go well we can be back on of seeing a, a kind of a protest again by the union. So And I think the danger to it was that if this bail went through, um, the other unions would be next. So I think people recognized that, and that's why there was such a great solidarity.
0: Yeah, I, I, they were talking about a general strike across Ontario and perhaps other places in the country. If Ford and St- Stephen Lecce and the, and the provincial government didn't rethink what it had put in place in terms of uh, labor unions and their tactics for negotiating, right?
1: And I think, like for some some things, didn't make sense because you know they had this catch-up payment where they're giving two hundred to two hundred and fifty dollars to each family who has a child um, in school, but that money, which would have been over two hundred million dollars, could have actually been used as part of uh, the negotiations and kind of giving some of the raises they've been asking for to actually create a system that will be more sustainable and supportive for students and better conditions for um, educators and those working within schools such as ECEs and custodians.
0: Yeah, that that initiative in terms of uh, sending money directly to, to families, uh, you know, for some families, maybe, yeah, it's going to be, well, not maybe, it will be beneficial for that, that that extra money in their pockets. But it just seems strange in terms of after an election, it's almost like, okay, thanks for electing us. Here's here's some, here's some a payout or reward for electing us. It, 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 it can not be yes. taken as that in terms of, of what they put in place. And ra- rather than, than offering the money directly to the schooling system to, to enhance what's taking place there. So I, I see, again, uh, uh, Stephen Lecce came out right after uh, saying, like, look, here's the total amount of money that we put in the system to support during COVID-19 and after. But it still doesn't make sense in terms of what they, they, they did there in that, in that, that most recent policy and sending funds out to every family. I, I don't know what way.
1: Yeah, I would love for someone, uh, when they make those announcements and they kind of mention the absolute number of dollars put into an initiative, I would love for someone to say, well, can you really translate that number to how much dollars it is per student? because when we talk about millions of dollars, we divide that by the number of schools, by the number of students. It might be like $10 per student. You know what I mean? So, but when you mention it in terms of absolute numbers, it might seem something grand and gross, but um, it's not usually the case.
0: Well, and I thought that that was what was highly effective in terms of the media campaign by QP. They outlined the last 10 years in terms of percentage raises. And so, when you throw out a number like 11.5% it sounds like a, like a high like a, a huge increase in terms of 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 a raise but when you look at what has been allocated for the last 10 years or not it's not that much money and plus it, the percentage too like $39,000 you know 10% is not that much and I, I don't even understand how someone could live on that If you're if you're trying to work in a school in Toronto,
1: yeah, I think it goes back to kind of a lot of conversations we've had around like who controls the narrative, um, what is highlighted, you know, what is excluded, because you know often people who can control the narrative are able to advance their own self interest, and we see how governments use that um, as well, and when they choose not to show up to answer questions, you know, um, in the media to kind of also as a strategy avoid um, engaging in those conversations
0: want I want to come back to that point in terms of who controls the narrative in the media because I, I was able to read over your work uh, thank you for for sharing uh, your publications in terms of articles and and uh, book chapters and books I mean I, I it's I'm so amazed I, and I don't and I shouldn't be like in terms of the the work that you're doing. The the how productive in terms of the publications that you have done and and but also more importantly um, your commitment to collaborations with uh, colleagues. So you've collaborated on several projects w- with different co- colleagues, which is a testament to the kind of relationality that you're you're committed to. But before I ask you or come back to that, I was wondering, heard of the work that you do? I've heard about you from different colleagues, grad students. But I hadn't hadn't met you until this summer when we got a chance to meet in uh, St. John's, Newfoundland at the Decolonizing Professional Learning gathering uh, where uh, colleagues from across the country came together, whether they were university uh, educational researchers, uh, representatives for different community organizations, teachers or educational leaders from uh, the different schools. And I was just wondering, how was that uh, for you? Have you given some thought in terms of what you experienced back in August? Has has that gathering continued to impact or has it had an impact in terms of the kind of work that you're doing now or the kind of relationships that you were able to make there with different colleagues?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was really a great gathering. It was just a starting point of exploring how we can uh, decolonize education and uh, K to twelve and higher education policies and practices. Uh, for me, um, the most important aspect of it uh, was relationship building. I was able to, you know, meet folks like yourself, people from BC, from Alberta. Um, you know, for uh, mostly my connections are in Ontario, so this was really a great opportunity to connect with others who are doing equity, diversity, inclusion decolonization, indigenization work uh, in their various positionalities and uh, roles that they're in. And I've been able to maintain uh, some of those uh, friendships, some of those professional connections. Um, I know, for example, uh, with Melissa Valela and Jerome Cranston, uh, we have co-written an article reflecting the conversations and the small circles uh, we led, the gathering. And um, that should be coming out in January in the Education Canada Network magazine. And just really reflecting all those conversations uh, to continue doing the work. Um, You know, as I always say, for me, research is a form of advocacy and awareness. Uh, We write with a purpose, not for the sake of publication, you know, publishing. And so I'm always thinking about what do I want to write about? How do I want to write about it? How do I want to disrupt the status quo? And the discourse that is normalized out there, whose voices are excluded. So, for me, I always have to come back to those conversations, and this is why I also like working with people because um, it allows me to have these conversations and for us to share um, different perspectives uh, rooted in different lived experiences. You know, different uh, embodiments with privilege and oppression, and how we can build on top of each other um, to present uh, you know a narrative that others can connect to, particularly trying to center voices of those from equity deserving uh, groups, centering voices of Black, Indigenous, uh, people of color, uh, those from low income, who often are silenced and excluded um, through uh, normalized policies and practices in education, as well as other
0: institutions. And the work that you do, one of the things that comes out across the work that you've uh, shared in terms of what, you, what you've decided to pub- like share through publications, whether that's... Uh, interviews with the media or articles uh, that that you've published or or book chapters, or even book uh, that you uh, shared with me is a lot of the the connections or work that you're committed to has deep rooted connections to your own lived experiences as a first generation immigrant to Canada. And I know, I think you said uh, in the one book you had commented, in terms of your own autobiographical experience or your lived experience, life, your own life history in decolonizing educational assessment it was a beautiful intro that's, that sets up uh, this study. And I, I have a few questions. One, in terms of, you know, was this uh, connected back to your, your, your doctoral work, this, the, the book itself? And, and two, those lived experiences in terms of being a first generation immigrant, I see those, the, the interconnections across your work. Do you find, like, as you're studying and looking at the different kinds of, of experiences or uh, research and your own writings, the way in which you reflect or think back on those experiences, you know, I'm, I'm wondering, how is it changing in relation to the changing dynamics of where you're now located in, in higher education? So I see you outlining and talking about how in the schooling system, for example, uh, the culture of of whiteness or cultural capital of whiteness is what's privileged uh, in the K-12 educational system, but also in the university setting. And I'm wondering how you're navigating that in relation to the shifting dynamics of your own positionality as someone working within higher ed, or, or, or perhaps maybe that's not the case necessarily in terms of the work that you're doing.
1: No, great question. So I think to answer your first question that Uh, Yes, um, the first uh, book I did, um, it reflected my um, PhD thesis. The book itself was called Decolonizing Educational Assessment, Ontario Elementary Students and the EQAO. I had an opportunity um, to interview uh, racialized students uh, as young as grade three, so really around nine years old. Um, I also um, interviewed um, their parents, who predominantly were educators or administrators, vice principals, or principals. And I did that strategically because there was a gap in the literature around capturing racialized voices, or a lot of it focused on the grade 10 Ontario Secondary School literacy test. So I really wanted to focus on the grade three young student voices um, to see how did they perceive this test, uh, what it did it mean to them. Yeah, so what I found was even though the students were often told it doesn't impact your grades, it's not going to hold you back, and, um, you know, it's different compared to the United States, that's not how the students actually experienced it. For them, it was a big deal. Had a student with special education needs who started losing hair leading up to the test. Um, Had another student who refused um, and had a mental breakdown the day of the test. They had to call the parents um, to calm him down. So we really start to see how stressed students become. And the reason I gravitated towards that topic was because when I was teaching in high school or, you know, as I transitioned to teach in uh, post-secondary institutions, a lot of students had test anxiety, particularly when I asked them, well, where do you think this all started? They really attributed to um, EQAO testing as start out in elementary and middle school. So this is what really gravitated me towards it. And as a racialized um, teacher, many parents and students would come to me and share those feelings and vulnerability. And they would tell me they would not say that to other teachers. So it spoke to the relationships uh, and the importance of it and how students can share those. And I think I realized if we want students to share those voices, um, speak up, um, share their vulnerability, I need to model that. So as a professor working uh, within uh, you know a higher institution, I really try to model that i don't see being vulnerable as a weakness i think that's how i would have seen it growing up in a toxic hypermasculine environment and playing competitive sports uh, but now i see i actually see that as a form of maturity and strength you know people who can tell their story and claim it in an empowering way are actually challenging the status quo are actually challenging the normalized discourse and how we need to have um, other perspectives centered To recognize different students have different needs and to give you one example would be um, if we typically go around and you know there's many there was programs where police officers were assigned to work in work in schools to make it safer um, you know due to specific trends of violence particularly in Ontario Well, if we go around and ask everybody in the school what do you think of this initiative you know do you feel safer right Oftentimes, uh, what we'll see is um, the average response will be like most students want the police officers. But um, this is when we actually um, lose perspectives in translation. If we actually go and now ask a specific group of students what is their experience like, um, they might actually respond and say, no, uh, we don't feel safe because of racial profiling and things that are experienced outside of school. So it's really important to actually focus on specific lived experiences, and that's gonna differ by social group, particularly groups who face more systemic barriers rooted in a history of colonization, rooted in a history of intergenerational trauma, and rooted in a history of imperialism and white supremacy that's enacted.
0: In the pieces that you shared with me, you set up the pieces by acknowledging what you just said. Like, look, I am gonna share my lived experiences to let the reader know where I'm coming from, the interconnections in terms of communities that I'm collaborating with to do the research. But also stressing uh, in those pieces that sharing one's lived experiences and the the vulnerabilities that one has experienced in relation to the schooling system is a form of uh, creating a counter-story in terms of what you said, normalizing. Um, the way in which uh, certain narratives are mediated and circulated in relation to the K-12 schooling system, or teacher education, or higher ed, or in terms of the public media as well, and different communities. So I really appreciated that thread, that connecting thread across the the different works that you shared. And, you know, just coming back to where we started at in in our conversation and thinking about what's going on in Ontario right now, in in terms of, of negotiations, and the work that you're doing. I, I, I remember in, uh, was it 1998 or 1999, I was working as a teacher and uh, one of the first uh, positions that I got, the principal's like, Nick, you know, I think you have the right disposition to work with these youth who are, quote unquote, at risk of not completing their high school degrees. I was a, a resource teacher working with, you know, students teaching subject areas that I wasn't qualified to teach, you know, as a qualified history. And a science high school teacher, I ended up, I think, teaching geography and English and math, mathematics to grade nine uh, students who were at risk of not completing the high school degree. But it was the same time where the Harris government was putting certain measures in place through Bill 160 to increase like the overwork workload of high school teachers to reduce the autonomy that high school teachers might have. So the climate was not good there. And there was general strike days there as well across the pro- across the province. So I was reminded of those experiences in relation to what's going on right now. But particularly that was at the same time, I think in your in your narrative, your autobiographical narratives in, in different parts of what you've shared with your readers, that you immigrated from Iran to uh, Canada and in your writings open up to how you had to navigate the schooling system as a second lang- language learner, whether it was in elementary school and then the different expectations that were placed upon you or uh, upon yourself uh, in high school and as you transition to higher ed. So I was just wondering, like, I, in light of what's going on in terms of uh, Iran right now, and, and uh, you know, you don't have to comment on that if you want, but uh, that transition as a first generation immigrant, how have you been thinking about that in relation to now your work within uh, teacher education?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think... Um... I do want to comment on the piece on Iran because, you know, it's so important that people are, become aware of what is going on in Iran. You know, people have been protesting in the streets of Iran as well as internationally worldwide around the systemic oppression that they are experiencing by the current regime in power, uh, where a religion is imposed on them and misinterpreted in ways to justify violence and oppression to the people. And I think, uh, you know, since, you know, Iran had a revolution in 1979 and then became a Muslim country, many things have not gone as expected. And we have gotten to this tipping point where the death of a young woman uh, named Mahsa Amini, who was killed by the morality police for not wearing her hijab properly and showing a little bit of an excessive hair, has been the tipping point of this Uh, resistance movement and uh, now you know the international community um, is acknowledging it i think they should still be doing more um, to support the folks uh, because many people are losing their lives kind of resisting and so i think in relation transitioning to your second question i always think about that i would really be a different person if i grew up in iran uh, in good or bad ways but i will definitely my trajectory of life would have been 120 percent different I would have definitely been out in the streets um, protesting and resisting because I think my values um, would be very similar around, um, you know, um, standing up to injustice and inequity, particularly when it's perpetuated by systems of power, um, such as government um, and the education sector. So I always write about things that move me. I know people always like, you know, sometimes ask you when you have a doctorate, like, you know, what is your specialty? You know, what topic do you always write about? And for me, I always say, you know, it's just a big umbrella around equity and social justice issues. And if you look at the, the things that I've written about from, you know, standardized testing to equity issues in the early years to critical pedagogy, oral culture, the central pillar of everything is how do we make systems more equitable and just so the needs of everyone is met particularly um, equity deserving groups. And that's going to look different based on who is doing this work, uh, based on their positionality, um, based on the extent of systemic barriers and traumas and the circumstances they're in. So it's not a one size all solution, which is why, as you mentioned, it's so important in my work that I kind of outline where am I coming from? um, What works for me? But here are some ideas that people should grapple with to kind of challenge the norm. Um, I always say this saying that, um, Until we make something abnormal, we can't change it. So if we take something for granted, if we don't question it, if we don't critically ask who's included and who's excluded, there's no way we can change that. And change starts with the power of ideas and individuals because systems are made of individuals who perpetuate certain ideas. So at the ground level, we need to really change what ideas are we engaging with and who does it privilege. And the the more people who can engage in those conversations and we build strategic and synergetic partnerships with, we can try to have that turnover effect of changing institutions, their discourses, and the policies and the practices they embody and
0: enact on others. I was wondering if it, you'd indulge me for a minute. I just wanted to read a, a few sections of how, how you're situating yourself in relation to the work that you do. In your in the intro to your book, uh, in the section, uh, Shaping My Philosophy and Approach to Teaching and Learning, you say conscious of my autobiographical history and life experiences, such as being an immigrant and English as a second language learner. I, I make extra efforts as a teacher to reach out to immigrant and ESL students to understand their life stories and how they enter the learning space physically, socially, spiritually, and emotionally. And there's, you know, ac- across several of the pieces, you, you take the time to share and connect and trouble the assumptions that might be in place, w- whether they're for myself or you, or for the students that that we might be engaged with in teacher education or grad studies, the importance of, of, of questioning that as a form of unlearning. And so yeah, I, I, you, you wrote about that one piece in terms of teacher education. and I'm just wondering like what are your strategies now for taking that up in the teacher education programs that you that, you, that you're working within with the with the students that might be in, in those programs and, and what are you seeing and not seeing is, it's part of this program, and I don't want to put you on the spot to get you in trouble. Like, you're going to say, uh, Nick, I'm, I'm going to share some stuff, and if uh, if uh, colleagues hear this in the teacher education program that I happen to be working in, uh, there's potential for getting in trouble. I don't get the sense that that's the case necessarily in terms of what you share and what you write, and I would hope that would not be the case because, uh, if we're all committed to uh, addressing the ongoing uh, systemic barriers or, or inequities in teacher education, we should, all, should all be committed to doing that. So, yeah, again, just coming back to thinking about the work that you're doing and how you kind of illustrate how you're positioning yourself to question unlearning and learning in your own life. How do you take that up with uh, or the teacher candidates of programs and, and, and what are you seeing or not seeing in terms of teacher ed program that you're working within?
1: Yeah, I think for me, I, I don't have a problem providing critique, uh, but I recognize everybody has to take risks uh, based on their own situation and circumstances. So um, it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. I recognize some people's extent of speaking up um, can be limited due to the risk factors that they're exposed to. Uh, for myself, I think I want to answer that question uh, come from a micro and a macro level. I think on an individual level as a professor, um, there are a couple of things that I've added to my toolbox. And I'm always looking for new strategies. Like, you know, it's a growth mindset, it's continuous unlearning. So it starts with really. Who am I having conversations with and authentic conversations, right? If I want to, for example, uh, center indigenous voices, racialized scholars, I want to have some relationships uh, in community, with community, with professors who are doing work uh, with community and not just researching about these communities. There's a big difference in that, right? When it comes to, for example, the course syllabus, right? I'm trying to work towards ungrading, which obviously is a little bit more... Difficult working within a higher ed education that really values grades. Um, so there are some things I'm doing to build up towards that, right? I'm very conscious of whose voices do I cite because that contributes to knowledge production. So what are the positionalities of these authors? Are they white, black, indigenous? Is there a balanced perspectives? And more importantly, I even try to provide oppositional contrasting perspectives in some of my course content because I want the students to start questioning, you know, who gets to control the narrative, whose uh, perspective is accepted, who is not accepted uh, due to what reasons. So that's important. The other piece is the assessment piece. Um, I personally have uh, gone away from these big essays that are normalized in grad school as well as uh, Bachelor of Education programs and try to make it more hands-on and personalized. So things I've done is creation of public service announcement videos, creation of an infographic that uses course content uh, with a simple one-page reflection of what stood out to them and uh, what did they learn about, what did they unlearn. I thought these are much more meaningful. I enjoyed um, seeing the creativity of students putting it together rather than kind of a a much more uh, linear uh, expectation that is presented to them. And it's trying to meet students where they're at, instead of, you know, saying, you know, I'm going to put you in a box, you're A, B, C, D, because we know, and going back to my research, grading places a lot of um, anxiety onto students and it doesn't allow them to bring their best version. Um, You know, education and schooling are very different. Education is supposed to be about growth mindset, improvement, transferable life skills. And so, sometimes higher ed has those limitations because it's so hierarchical and governed by policies and practices that are rigid. It's an equality paradigm versus that equity paradigm that tries to meet a specific student's needs. On a larger scale, on a macro level, uh, some things I've tried to do in the past and something I've done at Wilfrid Laurier since I got there in 2020, is we created a, a student-led club, and uh, we even went back and forth of what should the title be, and what we settled is uh, equity diversity inclusion and indigenization coalition we call it edini uh, for short um the reason why we called it the coalition and not committee was because we've in the language of the university a committee is so exclusionary and inclusionary you know you put terms here's who can be on a committee who is who can't be on a committee here's what they have to do and that was a very colonial way of doing equity, diversity, inclusion, and indigenization work. We wanted to disrupt that, so we called a coalition because anybody can join. You don't need to commit. If life gets busy and you're in vulnerable or busy situations where your attention is required somewhere else, it's okay to miss some meetings. And so we invited faculty, we inc- we invited staff, um, we invited you know year one and year two teacher candidates, and it was a slow start. You know, five six people. Um, Now, we've kind of grown to be over 20 people who attend uh, monthly meetings. Uh, We actually just wrapped up an event in October. We called it Increasing Teacher Diversity in Ontario, where uh, we reached out to the local Waterloo Public and Catholic Board, and we had about 50 students from equity-deserving groups come on campus for a day where they heard uh, from uh, racialized teacher candidates, staff, and faculty about what university life can be, what it means to be a teacher, Um, that we see them and they're valued um, and trying to inspire them to become a teacher, or if not still pursue their passion and interest. So it's really a place like a community hub approach to bring ideas to life. doesn't mean we always agree with each other, but it's a brave space where we can have those conversations and people can show up as who they are. Because as you know, in university or education settings, a lot of times we feel policed and regulated from how you have to dress, how you have to talk, how you have to interact. And part of that is rooted in white supremacy and colonial logic. So we want to disrupt that. If somebody can't see a teacher that looks like them from their hair to how they have tattoos, to how they speak slang, then how can we inspire, how can we really inspire those people to become teachers? So in the most uh, recent book, um, which we've done uh, along with colleagues, uh, Dr. Steve Sider and Andrew B. Campbell, uh, the book is called Counter-Narratives of Pain and Suffering as Critical Pedagogy, Disrupting Oppression Educational Context. We really go deep into our own experiences of how we try to disrupt and use this um, critical pedagogy as a medium to connect with others and promote unlearning and decolonization. And for me, I talk about my tattoos. I remember people telling me, don't get a tattoo somewhere somewhere on your hand or face or neck, where it's visible, because uh, when you go to apply to become a teacher, they're going to hold that against you. I mean, at the time, I got the tattoos in other places, like my ribs and my arm. But I really deconstruct what these tattoos mean to me in the book, and how they symbolize and really were, you know, a, a medium for healing from my own traumas and experiences and growing as a
0: person. Well, and you uh, make reference to your first tattoo and and one of the I can't remember if it was in the book or the article with. Uh... Andrew Campbell about a uh, dedication to your grandmother before you were 18. And uh, I, mean, I just wonder what your parents, your parents think about the tattoo now, as opposed to how you were thinking back then, that'd be an interesting conversation, uh, I imagine.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, my, my dad, you know, my dad being an immigrant, at, uh, you know, relatively new to the country, um, he wasn't in approval <laughs> of the tattoo when I had that conversation with him. But, you know, being stubborn teenagers, um, I just one day went to a a shop and I I did it anyway. And for the longest time, I would wear long sleeves, even in the summer, because I didn't want him to know I had a tattoo on my arm. And I remember one day he came into my room and he was like, you know, you know, I'm not stupid. You always wear long (laughs) sleeves. And, and, you know, I told him, okay, all right, I got the tattoo and. I think in retrospect um, now, he's very supportive of it. I think it also speaks to uh, newcomers, refugee parents. They're also transitioning to a new outlook, a new value system. And a lot of times we forget that. Uh, And I know when I have conversations with high school youth that I mentor and talk to now, and they're telling me about how maybe their parents are you know, coaches don't understand them, I say you have to recognize, you know, maybe that person's lived experiences is totally different than yours. Because my parents growing up in Iran, uh, you know, being part of 1979 revolution, their life was so different than me growing up in Toronto. And so it's about kind of trying to make the other uh, party understand where are you coming from, and why you're experiencing these emotions. And this kind of really translates to kind of some of the work we try to do through our writing is trying to make others who are so rigid in their thinking, understand, you know what, there's a different interpretation, there's a different perspective rooted in different lived experience. And it's not a one size fits all approach, your vantage point on these social issues, and on these experiences really matter. um, And so it's important to to have those conversations.
0: Well, and you say in that piece uh, that you co-authored, I mean, here are some of the questions that you ask in the piece. And I, and, I, and you and you can see this again. You 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 come back to these questions whether it's the K to twelve system. You talk about it as you frame in relation to the EQAO and 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 how it excludes or includes uh, different people with different uh, you know different kids who have different uh, access, to different forms of cultural capital. Um, you ask who can enter the academy. What is the requirement to get access to to teacher programs to be a student or an instructor or an adjunct professor? Who's it easier for? Who has more systemic challenges along the way? And what are those barriers? Why is there a lack of representation from minoritized groups in both student body and faculty at most universities across the country? Even though the departments proudly claim they are diverse and in support of equity, do all social groups feel valued for their identities and contributions? Whose discomfort matters? How is racism embedded in performative institutional policies and practices? When racialized and minoritized identities get access to a space by being the token representative, they do not feel safe or empowered in belonging to that space. Uh, what is the emotional labor required by minoritized students, staff, and faculty to teach and unlearn within such spaces deemed neutral in appearance but contaminated with subtle microaggressions in everyday interactions? And so. I, I'm, to me, each of these questions could be a, a weekly framing question for a course that we're doing. I imagine they are for some of the courses that you do. I'm in I currently in a position of vice dean of grad studies in, in a, a leadership role, and I, I continue to to be be provoked and challenged by the questions that you're you're putting forth in here, either for myself uh, in terms of the work that that I continue to do, but also in terms of leadership, like asking these questions and getting frustrated when there seems to be like incremental moves towards equality or equity, like just kind of the the slowness of the pace to address some of these. And I, I, I don't know if you experience those same kind of frustrations and, and what you're trying to do in terms of the work that you're doing now and where you see yourself linked to higher education and then communities that you're seeking to serve in terms of community work that you're doing.
1: Yeah. For me, I think, um, I always say it's actually the questions are more important than the answers because the questions send you on the journey to find the answers and the journey mm-hmm. will be different for everybody once again based on who you are, what has been your past um, experiences, your past traumas. And so this is why in a lot of my writings, I center questions and I try to answer some, but you know the, ones, the one perfect solution answer is a, a colonial way of trying to tackle social justice issues, right? We actually need multiple approaches uh, happening across multiple communities, such as a great example was that, you know, that solidarity QP strike to potentially challenge an abuse of power. And so I think the the question piece is really important and thank you for um, reading some of those questions. I think coming back to how I'm grappling with one thing is for example, at Wilfrid Laurier, we are trying to rethink our admissions. Because And that's happening across all faculties of education in the country. Uh, We're trying to see, you know, the main factor is grades and experiences where you interact with children or mentor them or work with them. Those are predominantly the two main factors that are considered when faculties of education are accepting uh, teacher candidates into their program. Well, if we look at this historically, those who face more systemic barriers are likely going to get um, lower grades due to lack of support systems available to them or timely support system provided to them. And they might have less opportunities to engage in, op- in placements where they interact with children due to having to constantly work being from a single parent household. So how do we rethink this paradigm? Right. One way might be we start collecting identity based information such as gender, race, sexuality to be more intentional, because when we look at the diversity uh, within many faculties of education, it doesn't reflect the communities we serve. And that also translates into the the teacher workforce, where in many communities, um, the teacher diversity doesn't reflect the student body. So this has been an ongoing process. Uh, We've engaged in it at Wilfrid Laurier. Uh, We've reworded the questions uh, that we ask to actually not only value professional experience, but also value lived experiences that uh, can make someone a great teacher. But the part around collecting identity-based data has been more challenging because once again, We work within a culture that is so fixated on liability and risk. And so when you want to ask people these questions, conversations have been brought up about we need to advise a lawyer. Um, This is going to take long. And so we're still trying to do all those things to make the change happen. But as you know, with systemic change, it is very slow. Uh, Sometimes it feels like um, it is more than slow and this is where coping and healing come in because when you're doing equity diversity inclusion work sometimes you feel like we're not moving the needle and it is frustrating and so um, it is so important to find community in people whether that's in person physically spiritually or online um, to have those spaces where you can interact with others you can vent you can get ideas bounce ideas because it becomes a space where you regroup you re-strategize um, you fill your cup back up, and you keep chipping at it. And if we all keep chipping at it, once again, we can try to change the ideas, work with individuals and organizations um, to create that systemic uh, turnover within policy and practice changes.
0: And I think sometimes when we put a timeline on, it's like it's like there's going to be an endpoint, but it's it, it's got to be sustained. There's no, I we've we've arrived in terms of this kind of work. It's a it's ongoing in terms of. The, the way in which the structures uh, are set up, you know, when I first started at the University of Ottawa, I remember I was asked to be on um, part of the, the the review committee for applicants to the teacher ed program, and I remember we were in a big hall, there was people sitting at tables around ten per table reviewing, like, you know, we had like a thousand you know, at that point like two were two thousand applications to review, but it was mostly retired. Uh, principles that came from a, a certain racialized demographic that were reviewing that. But it, um, the director at the time had the foresight to ask me to review all of the files that had been given a failing mark. So I think it was like out of 10 like that they would assess. It was like these statement of experiences. So you applied, you were assessed based on your grades and that, but also on this one pager statement of experience. and. The students, some of the students that had been failed for that statement experience, they were like, "I never saw anyone like myself. I experienced uh, barriers in the K to twelve system. I'm becoming a teacher because I wanted to uh, be of service to my community, so they could see towards becoming a teacher." So we reviewed those files, and fortunately, we were able to, to review and have that in place. Those students, it was ch- the great the grading was changed, like because they were excellent statement experiences, but I think for you know, well, I don't think, but whoever reviewed them gave them failing grades because they're like, who's this person critiquing the system? And uh, we've since changed the statement experience where there is one question for everyone across the board. How, how are you thinking or how are you addressing equity, diversity and inclusion in relation to how you think uh, your perspectives in terms of becoming a teacher or how you've done that in the past or thinking towards the future? So that is now part of that. Is it perfect? I don't know. I don't think so. And I'm wondering too, okay. So we did that, we put that in place, and then when I was director, uh, I think it was my last year, I had students then approach and say, you know, Nick, uh, okay, so we're here now, like a, a gr- group of students that, that who later later created an organization called Teacher Candidates of Color, uh, but we don't feel that the program is ready for the kind of things that we want to address as future teachers in the program in, in terms of uh, the individuals teaching the course, the course content, the way in which the course content's being addressed. And i it was a, it was a, it was a good unlearning moment for me as a director of teacher education my last year uh, to, to kind of rethink, okay, we wanna invite and create different opportunities for students to come, but are we actually ready as a community to welcome them? And what, what, what have we done in terms, as a collective, the necessary work to, to ensure that we have that across the program? So I'm wondering, are you having those conversations as well with uh... yeah,
1: 100%. That is uh, such a great point. Um, and I think that is the difference between diversity and inclusion that is often yeah. assumed it's synonymous, but it's not right. So diversity is how do we help the students get there, which is what you mentioned, what I've talked about yeah. is looking at where is the gatekeeping happening and then how do we break that barrier, particularly for students from equity deserving groups inclusion becomes how do we make sure when they get there, they feel like they belong, they're valued for their cultural capital, they're valued for how they speak, they're valued for speaking up and criticizing the institution for not upholding what they're supposed to do. And so for me, I always explain inclusion as a embodiment of uh, power, right? Um, If you show up and everybody is commenting, Oh, your hair is different. You know, how do you do it? Or, Uh, you you don't really dress appropriate like a teacher, those becomes acts of microaggressions. And we know um, racialized, minoritized identities often experience those microaggressions more often. And it might get to the point where they say, you know what, it's not worth it. I'm going to leave this space. So I think there's two things we need to focus on as faculties of education, but you can even extend this to corporations and businesses who are trying to become more diverse. In one way, you need to ensure people get there, which... You know, in our woke culture, people are doing it more often. But what's becoming problematic is this tokenism, this performative politics, this checklist approach of, okay, you know, we've hired uh, one indigenous staff, we've hired one black person, we've hired one Muslim person, we've done our job, done. Let's wipe our hands and move on. But what happens is a lot of times those people leave because their ideas are not heard, they're not supported, they experience microaggression. So we also need to invest just as much energy and time and resources into making sure um, those minoritized identities when they do take up space uh, within institutions are supported, their voices are heard. We check in with them. How are you doing? How has the transition been? How can we, uh, what do you think are your needs? What is the, what are we not doing good? And it requires us to have these honest, brave conversations that we're not doing enough, right? For me, institutional failure or apathy is at the core of many systemic inequities and what we often do when there is a shortcoming is you know through this neoliberal capitalistic lens you know um, survival of the fittest we make it about the individual right they weren't good enough they didn't ask for help they just didn't care versus asking how did the system and where did the system fail them why didn't they try was it because they felt they weren't being heard they didn't feel you know people were approachable right so when we make it about the system we can make it about analyzing power and how it works and how it trickles down to impact um, different people in unique ways and we know when we look at this across patterns you know for me i say if something is a systemic barriers it's about patterns and not exceptions so if i tell you an example of um, oh, people from single-parent households are are going to face more barriers, um, achieving their full potential. Well, you might tell me, well, look at LeBron James. He came from a single-parent household, and he's a very famous, uh, successful athlete. You are correct, but that is an exception to the rule. If I took 100 people in those poor conditions from poverty to single-parent households, more than 50 didn't make it. So don't give me the exception to the rule to say there isn't systemic barriers like systemic racism, colonialism, white supremacy. Let's talk about patterns and how that impacts different social groups. And I think that's kind of part of what we already talked about around knowledge production and whose voices are heard and whose lived experiences
0: are valued. Yeah, that's the discourse of meritocracy, right? Like, look, if you just work hard enough, you can make it. (laughs) Uh, as and as the exception, as opposed to, to as you stated, looking at the, the systemic patterns. And, you know, coming back to LeBron James in terms of basketball, I know, again, you make reference to it in, in your works about how you play basketball growing up. But I also know that you're, you're deeply uh, committed and implicated in terms of community work. And I, I know you have an organization. I think I just saw it in terms of you've created programming. For youth, in terms of supporting their transitions uh, from high school to secondary, in terms of tutoring, but then also there's a sports connection. I was just wondering if you could share a little bit about that. And as you know, we talked about it. I I, I got really excited when I found out that you you act, you, you ref basketball as well. And my son is um, Ezra is so uh, in love with the game of basketball, and that's he lives, breathes, and and sleeps uh, basketball. So. Yeah, so I know you're doing that work uh, in terms of uh, working with community through sports and uh, and academics.
1: Yeah, I mean, for me, I always tell people education and sports are the two intersections of my life, which also um, guide who I am, how I'm involved in community and the work I do as a researcher, a scholar, a professor and a community activist. So I kind of wear two hats. Uh, You know, um, I'm executive director at a nonprofit that operates out of Jane and Finch Community. A community most people only know for negative things when that's not the case. That's a deficit thinking we need to disrupt. The organization is called Youth Association for Academics, Athletics, and Character Education, y A A A C E If you go on the website, you can learn about the social inclusion strategy that the organize, uh, organization u- uses to really mitigate systemic inequities and the opportunity gap because a lot of times, affordability and lack of accessibility is a problem impacting racialized communities and those from equity deserving groups. So the organization provides athletics, you know, has a very prominent basketball program. Uh, We've had many NBA players and folks who've gone and played pros overseas. Um, We provide academics, Um, you know, right now we're providing tutoring services, uh, working with the Toronto District School Board and Toronto Catholic District School Board as part of additional supports coming back uh, from the pandemic. We provide um, youth violence and gang uh, prevention programs, one with the City of Toronto called Towards Peace, and another one funded by Public Safety Canada called uh, New Narrative. And so a lot is on the go. Um, All of it really focuses on mitigating the opportunity gap through timely supports, uh, supports that are uh, socioculturally reflective of people and their lived experiences, particularly um, you know black identities, people of color, uh, low-income individuals who may not afford um, certain programs. That's really part of it. With me, you know, I've been, I stayed involved in the in the in the basketball community. You know, I, I used to play competitively. Um, I then coached with the Ace. And I transitioned into refereeing at a young age and officiating. And so I've been able to then officiate at the college, university, semi pro level. Over the summer, I was able to go to Sao Paulo, Brazil, where I got my international uh, wheelchair basketball officiating license, so representing Canada. And uh, that has been amazing. Uh, Right after that trip, I got to go to the Commonwealth Games in the United Kingdom, uh, where they hosted uh, three on three wheelchair basketball for the first time at commonwealth games so it's history in the making and kind of going back to what we said in education and the work we do it's all about relationship building right Um, being able to travel uh, make friendships with people in different countries learn about their culture learn about the issues that impact them how do they see it and all of this helps me grow right Uh, i always tell people you know i hang out with friends who are 50, 60 years old and people who are teenagers and they're all my friends and all of them are special because they help me grow and look at things differently. And so I think that's important. And something I'm really trying to do in everything I do, um, even in the sports world, I've tried to kind of disrupt uh, some of the discourses. I know I did a whole series last year. It was a three-part series uh, through my consulting company called Education, EDI Cation. Uh, you can check out the website uh, where I posted the, the webinars that were recorded, education.org. And the series, uh, the one the first episode was uh uh being Muslim in the world of basketball. We did another session around uh being woman in the world of basketball and another one being black and I had uh, players coaches and officials all come together and I moderated the panels to hear these different perspectives what do they think are the systemic barriers where is the gatekeeping happening because just like in education we don't see the representation in the coaches and officials that reflect the athletes we serve and how do we change that Uh, and there's a lot of overlap I continue to stay um, active in both worlds. For me, um, they kind of uh, fit and um, synergize between each other, education and sports. And it's a great way for me to stay in the front lines and stay connected to community and be in community uh, when I go to events uh, and initiatives happening uh, to continue building relationships and building new connections and hear the perspective of the next generation who's dealing with um, different
0: circumstances and different extent of barriers. Artie. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to have a conversation with me on Fookum Conversation. Uh, for those uh, that want to learn more about uh, Artie's uh, work, again, you can go to www.edication, So www.edication.org. I hope we get the chance to uh, have you come visit with us at the University of Ottawa, at the Faculty of Ed, uh, Artie, to share your, your wisdom and insights with uh, grad students and colleagues and I would love uh, teaching a course in uh, a doctoral seminar course in contemporary issues and I would, I would love uh, to, to host you again uh, with the students. Um, I, I continue to unlearn and, and learn in terms of uh, your, your work and uh, I, lo- I know the, the, the best is yet to come. So thanks again for, for coming on the podcast.
1: I really appreciate you um, taking the time to have this, um, you know, authentic conversation in the brave space that you cultivated uh, over your podcast. Um, I can also be um, reached or connect with on Twitter at Dr. Zadirat, D-R-E-I-Z-A-D-I-R-A-T, as well as I'm on LinkedIn. And I just wanted to end by saying uh, when we were uh, in August together at St. John's, uh, we decided to go for a morning run. And, you know, Nick wasn't going to wake up, but eventually we pressured him to wake up at like 5.30 a.m. And I just want to put it on the record that, you know, we went on this 5k run and I beat him by one step. (laughs)
0: <laughs> you just want to put that in. i think i think my, my achilles is still recovering from signal hill but, uh, <laughs> that was a, an amazing bonding experience so i really appreciate it i hope we get to do it again and uh when you do come to ottawa we'll go we'll go up the wolf trail and we'll do some trail running together
1: that sounds great man. okay
0: <laughs>